Psalm 98, a psalm. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. May God bless his word today. Okay, uh, if you've got a sermon outline with you, uh, which you should have received at the door from our friendly door greeting people, uh, you'll find that useful to look at, even if you're trying to figure out how long I'll take to get through this, uh, you can see how close we are to the end. Um, on the more positive notes, I think I've got some good things to say here, so uh, before we come and encounter God's word, let's come before our Lord God in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you thanks uh, for your goodness to us in giving us this wonderful psalm today. We pray that you'd help us to appreciate the psalm in, it, in its own right and also understand something more of you from uh, the whole of your word. Thank you for this time now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on September 11, uh, 1297, William Wallace and an army of Scottish soldiers faced off against the English enemy, against a guy called the Earl of Surrey, uh, John de Warren, and over 5,000 English soldiers at a place in Scotland called Stirling Bridge. During the preparations for this battle, the English forces gathered on the southern side of the bridge. It was a narrow bridge, it was about 30 metres wide, and it had some very deep water underneath it. On the eve of the battle, uh, the Earl of Surrey, the Englishman, uh, ordered his troops to cross over the bridge at daybreak the following morning. And so at dawn, several thousand troops crossed over that bridge two by two. But the trouble was, uh, because the Earl was pretty tired from all these battle preparations the night before, he actually slept in. So thousands of troops crossed the bridge and they were a bit confused because they were waiting for some further instructions, uh, but none were forthcoming. And so the soldiers decided they'd better cross back over the bridge two by two once again to where they'd come from. Well, after a while, the Earl did wake up. And as he looked out and he saw the Scottish position being fairly well solid as they were based up in some cliffs, and he saw the summer sun glinting on the steel of their spears and swords, he dithered because he thought their position looked invincible. But finally, uh, the English treasurer was a little bit sick of this dithering and he had his say about what they should do. He reminded the Earl of how much the war was already costing the English, and so he suggested that they cross that jolly bridge without much further ado. 
Well, the Earl was annoyed and frustrated by this interruption. He was irritated, but he was tired from uh, some of the arguing. So he reissued the command for the English troops to cross back over. But this put uh, William Wallace and the Scottish at great advantage because although they had a, a much smaller army, they could work out the odds bit, a bit better as the English poured over the bridge. They could figure out how many they wanted to fight. And when the right time came, William Wallace blasted a single ram's horn and the Scots poured down out of the cliffs with their spine-chilling war cries and they attacked the English. Panic reigned amongst the English and as they started to realise they weren't going to win against the Scots, they started to flee. But as they fled back over the bridge, they crashed into their fellows who were already coming back over the other side. And so plenty of the English, hundreds of them, uh, fell off the bridge uh, and into the water. They either fell off or were pushed off or they jumped off uh, and they drowned because of their heavy armour. The Scots had been uh, suffering dreadfully under the English and they'd never been able to overcome an English army before this time. But that day when they faced that superior army of over 5,000 troops, there were victory cheers by the Scottish who'd risked everything in order to get their independence from the English. And they cheered for William Wallace, their leader who led them in victory over the enemy. Well, there are times that we do feel like cheering, aren't there? I haven't had the experience of uh, that kind of battle cheer, uh, but I can understand why the Scots would want to cheer on that day. After they'd been copying a whooping so many times from the English, they finally got over the top of them. Well, I wonder when you feel like cheering. I imagine it's not all the time. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Well, William Wallace and the Scots shared a moment when they were happy to cheer and dance. But we don't always feel like cheering. Although there are times when we can rejoice and cheer. I noticed some spontaneous cheering yesterday at the wedding of Osei in Alberta. Uh, particularly at the time, a very sensitive little moment in the wedding ceremony, after which I think I noticed Alberta wiped some lipstick off uh, Osei's lips. I think there was a bit of cheering at that time too. <laughs> the people of Israel did not always cheer. They sang songs of lament, we see in the Psalms. But today the Psalms got a different kind of tone to a lament. There's a rousing feeling to it. You might have noticed that as it was read. If it was on a continuum, it's, it's more down the end of a psalm that's a, a, a laughing and dancing kind of a psalm as opposed to a, a, a weeping and a mourning one. Let's have a look at it in verse 1. Firstly, the psalmist calls God's people to sing and praise the Lord and sing a new song because God has done something new, something wonderful. Let's have a look in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. 
God's cast in the image of a, of a warrior. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. And the idea here is that God is strong. He's so strong he can save his people. And we get that kind of imagery of a strong arm to save God's people from uh, certainly when God spoke to Moses in Exodus. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses how he'll deal with Pharaoh. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I'll perform among them. After that, he'll let you go. Well, this psalm's not really so specific that it tells us that the Exodus is the main event uh, that they're thinking of when, when the psalmist writes about salvation. Uh, the faithful reader might recall that not only did God save in the Exodus, but also during the wars under Joshua. Remember when the, the walls came tumbling down at Jericho? That was God saving his people. Or when God delivered uh, the Israelites during the time of the judges, sometimes using uh, weapons that looked uh, very weak or pathetic. He still raised up people to save at the time of the judges. Or when God saved the Israelites from the Philistines under David even right up to the time when God returned his remnant of his people safely home back from Babylon. God saved his people on numerous occasions. He's acted specifically in time and space. And people of the world knew about what God had done to save his people. He didn't do this in a corner. This wasn't somehow uh, you know, news that didn't get out. Uh, in verse 2 we're told, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. Listen, if you turn to Exodus chapter 15, I can show you uh, where some of the nations found out about what happened as they came out of Egypt. Turn to Exodus chapter 15, verse 10. That's the second book of the Bible, so it's not too hard to find. And this is when Moses is singing after they've walked through the Red Sea, and God's helped save the Israelites. And the other nations start to find out about it. Exodus chapter 15, verse 10. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. See, these nations are hearing about what God's done. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you brought bought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Other people, the people of the world, knew about the salvation that God brought for his people. But what does the psalm say about why God has chosen to save his people. Why does God do it? Well, in verse 3, we're told, 
He's remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Well, God knows everything. It's not as though he's got a bad memory, like he's um, like my great grandmother used to um, forget who I was and uh, remember me as her little Jew boy. She couldn't remember my name, but uh, God's not like that. He's not like a grandma with Alzheimer's. He, when he remembers his love, he's saying he's acting on it and he has love and faithfulness to his people. God doesn't save the Israelites because they're better than any other nation either. It's not as though they're a, a bunch of superstars uh, with a bit of an African connection here. They haven't made the cut like the globetrotters, you know, somehow found their way with their impressiveness into a, a top team. This is what God says about why he's chosen to save them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, it says he's not because of their righteousness. In verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. God saves his people because of his own character, his own loving kindness towards them, and his faithfulness to the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that through Israel, through this nation, all the worlds would be blessed. So it's through faithfulness to his people and his faithfulness to the whole world. That's why he saves them. Well, there is a time to rejoice. There is a time to sing and to dance. And we worship God because he's been faithful in carrying out his plans to save his people. And as Christians, we see the climax of that in the salvation for our souls that comes through Jesus. This is what Paul had to say about that in Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and we were enslaved as well, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, isn't that a marvellous passage that talks about how God has saved us? He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of God's character, because of his mercy. We've been given a spiritual birth through the Holy Spirit, and that comes from Jesus, our Saviour, who's poured out the Spirit to us. And now we stand not condemned by God for our sin, but we're justified, we're acquitted. And we now live as his children. We are heirs looking forward to inheriting the earth. And we're given the great hope to live by, a hope of eternal life. Well, there might be times to mourn and weep. And I certainly had one of those times earlier uh, this week as I went to a funeral of of a lady who was the same age as my wife, who left behind four kids and a husband. It was a very sad time and I bawled my eyes out. But the difference with that funeral was that she was a Christian person and she had this hope of eternity. And so whilst there was sorrow, it was mixed with a joy and a real living hope. 
the question for us is, do we feel the weight of what God has done in giving us salvation? Do we let it sink in and actually rejoice in the salvation that we have, that we are heirs of God, we are his people, we are his children? Or do we get waylaid at times and grumble about things that uh, aren't quite right and don't always go our way? Are we malcontent with life? Or do we actually look on, look on the bright side, if you like, because we've got reason to? Well, that's the challenge from this psalm, that we ought to sing and rejoice in God. We ought to shout, shout for joy for the salvation that we have, that God's brought us. Well, let's continue in uh, verses 4 through to 6. Here we have a noisy couple of verses. Verse 4, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. This is like when you hear a song on the radio that you like and you decide to turn it up. Well, this, the, the volume of this psalm has been turned up and there's no shame here as uh, God calls his people to shout for joy. As Christians, we're also called to join in this singing. Paul tells us in Colossians that we are to sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our heart to God. It didn't always come naturally for me to um, sing to God, by the way. I remember as a teenager when I started going back to church without uh, my parents, uh, I rolled into youth group and the American Texas summer missionary was playing his guitar there. He was playing a Negro spiritual song called Do Lord. I've got a home in glory land, that kind of song. I'm not going to sing it now, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> and I was a bit too cool for school, as they say. So I was kind of being a bit coy and not, not wanting to get into it. And he said, it's okay, Pete, come on, we're in church now. <laughs> so uh, he let me know that it's okay to sing for joy to the Lord. We don't have to be ashamed. But you might find it hard to sing to the Lord for other reasons. You might not feel uh, that you're worthy to sing to God. And that might hold you back, feeling of, feelings of unworthiness. Well, I suppose that's half true, isn't it? We are unworthy to sing before the Lord. We're not worthy. Uh, but God in his kindness gives us the gift of salvation. Uh, he brings us into his family so that we have the honour to come before him and sing. He's, um, he's laid that on our consciences to be the people who will sing to him. And remember that we're his creatures uh, and he's our maker. So it's important that when we sing, we uh, remember we're not singing from the point of view of trying to make it into the team or perform in front of God. But when we're singing, we're singing for what God has done, that we've been brought into his family and we're true members uh, and we enjoy the salvation that he's brought through Christ that we might sing to his, his glory. Well, where does this pa passage take us from here? Well, it's hard to believe, but um, the psalm seems to get even louder. It's not just the people of the world. But in fact, the whole universe, which is uh, called upon to praise his name. We'll pick it up in verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. 
Everyone and everything is uh, invited to praise God. And it's an appropriate invitation by the psalmist because God has made a commitment to his creation. In fact, he's made a covenant with his creation. This is what he says to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God's been committed to his creation, a good creation from the very beginning. And we're told in Romans chapter 8 that God promises to renew it, uh, to see it through renewed without sin at the end. It's going to be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so the psalmist invites the whole world to praise God. There's another reason given that we should praise God is because we're accountable to him. He's uh, cast in terms of a judge. In verse 9, let them sing before the Lord. This is, this is everything. Let everything sing before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. God promises to visit his earth and judge. And we rem- we're reminded of that when uh, Paul spoke at Athens in Acts chapter 17. This is what he said when he's talking to the people about what God's like. He's not, he's not like an idol that they made out of their, their metal. He says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Friends, God's word reminds us that we need to turn back to God. God commands all people everywhere to repent, which means to to turn one's life and thinking back around and to face God once again. If you're a person who hasn't yet done business with the judge of all the earth, uh, now's the time. Now's the time to get things sorted out with God and to resolve things with the judge because we're going to meet him sooner or later anyway. But if you have turned back to God, uh, the news is good. When it comes to the judgment day, we're in the clear uh, because we have a saviour, Jesus our Lord. In the past, God overlooked people's ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so the message to you today from God is to turn back. Turn back to God while you still have an opportunity. Well, I wonder what you'll cheer about. Do you only cheer when um, New South Wales scores in the State of Origin football match? Do you only cheer when uh, the bride and the groom kiss at a wedding? Do you cheer when there's a baby being born? Well, at least two of those things are worth cheering about. (laughs) The baby and the wedding bit. William Wallace and his soldiers, they cheered when they uh, finally had it over the English in battle. And William Wallace's soldiers cheered for him because he led them in battle. But there's someone that we've got who's 
better than William Wallace to rejoice in. We can rejoice in Jesus. He's our saviour. He's the one who's brought us a different kind of victory, a victory over sin. Our lives certainly need a saviour. And he's brought victory over sin and death, that horror of knowing that without a saviour we would be on the wrong side of God. And so surely Jesus is worth cheering about. Jesus is worth shouting to the Lord for joy over. As I close, see if you can recognise this hymn which, uh, which, we, which we've sung in the past and, and guess which psalm it comes from. Listen to what Isaac Watts wrote. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Saviour reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat sounding joy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Lord God, we do give you thanks for your goodness to us, for your commitment to your whole creation and for being a God who has acted in time and space to save us and bring us back into uh, life with yourself uh, since we rebelled against you and went our own way and live with ourselves as little kings and queens instead of you. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came and willingly laid down his life only to take it up again as your king over all. Father, we give you thanks that we have a saviour and that on account of what he's done for us, we stand as your children and as heirs over the whole world and we have the hope of eternity with you. Father, we thank you that we can shout for joy even in the midst of times which are complex in life and difficult. We thank you that we have a hope uh, of eternity and life with you. Uh, We can look forward to the future with joy. We thank you for the goodness of yourself in uh, giving us this psalm today that we might rejoice. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.